I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Simon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at Minds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 73, we read Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, published in 1776. Adam Smith was born in Scotland in 1723. He studied social philosophy at the University of Glasgow and at Balliol College, Oxford. After graduating, he delivered a successful series of public lectures at the University of Edinburgh and collaborated with David Hume during the Scottish Enlightenment. Smith became a professor in Glasgow, teaching moral philosophy. He wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments in 1759 and The Wealth of Nations in 1776. Both were widely read, especially the latter. After several more jobs in government and academia, Smith died in 1790 at the age of 67. All right, so this is one of the landmark books in all of world history, without question. But we read it here as conservatism because he talks about markets, and it was really kind of the first entry into many of these ideas that are that are basic Econ 101 now. It's pretty cool. Smith, in this book, outlines the concept of gross domestic product, something that we're very familiar with now but using it as a measurement of national wealth, which is not something that they did back then. He also, his, one of his main innovations was showing how a specialization could lead to huge productivity gains and that both sides, both countries benefit from trade and not just the seller. So that's both at the local level and at, at the international level with international trade. That's something that wasn't, we'll talk about this, but that wasn't necessarily understood to be that way. And the market, he sees explains as an automatic mechanism that allocates resources with tremendous efficiency. And we'll get into this, but this is kind of his idea of the invisible hand. And all these ideas remain part of the basic fabric of economic science. That is Econ 101. And 200 years later, this is still the basis of, of how we understand markets and, and exchange to work. He also argues that when governments interfere with the freedom, with the uh, freedom of uh, exchange, with controls or tariffs or taxes, they actually make people poorer rather than richer, which makes him one of the original free market conservatives. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of these concepts, as he reads them, are like you said, they they seem they're the base they're the basis of economics now. But I mean, some of the stuff he starts out saying is 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 in opposition to the the mercantile system that was then uh, in control in Britain. the The idea that well, part of that part of that system was they thought that wealth was money, which you know, in in a way, makes sense. If you have a lot of money, you must be wealthy, right? But that system was built around the idea that all the money should come back to England. The gold, the silver, you know, the actual coin should end up in England, and the colonies are there to to enrich the mother country, and trade with other countries is meant to enrich the mother country, and that's it. Smith kind of looks at things differently and says, you know, there's more to wealth than just, you know, how many coins are jingling in your pocket. It's it's actually about everything that's produced in a nation. And this is where we kind of get the idea of gross domestic product. I don't think he used that exact term, but that's that's what he was getting at. It's a better measure of national wealth because, you know, if you send some of that gold abroad and bring back some trade goods that are that your people want, that they think makes their lives better, that maybe they help them be more efficient in their jobs or maybe feed them or 
just you know something they enjoy like uh like all the tea that england brought back from india that's you know that to the old view that was money going out and and leaves coming in a loss but smith looks at that and says both sides are getting what they want you know the, the tea farmers are getting that silver and the english tea drinker is getting his tea and everybody's happier everybody's glad to have done the transaction this is wealth this is uh this is this is trade and it's it's something we still talk about today yeah, exactly. And to us, it's it's just common sense. But at the time, it wasn't necessarily his. It really wasn't innovation for him to say money is and treasure. That's just a tool for exchange. You know, we're we're using that. We we could use money. We could use, you know, some of the Indians used beads to exchange to just use something that uh, that will have you know value that can be used to exchange back and forth. And what Smith is saying is that. You can have all the money, but actually what demonstrates your wealth is your ability to produce and your ability to consume. Like that's the end. The end of all this is the consumption. The end of all this is enjoying the actual uh, product that's produced as opposed to burying a bunch of money in a, a big chest in some castle. That, that doesn't really build wealth. In fact, it makes it harder for people to build wealth, and it probably makes the uh, poorer people, keeps them forever poor because that wealth is never shared and the value of the exchange is never sort of trickled down to them. He says, uh, a nation's wealth is its per capita national product, the amount that the average person actually produces. For any given mix of natural resources that a country might possess, the size of this per capita product will depend on the proportion of the population who are in productive work. Also, we should have said at the outset, we cheated a little bit this time and we apologize <laughs> the wealth of nations is like 800 pages 900 pages and uh he's he's scottish and it was written in the 18th century and digging through and finding the good stuff is a little bit difficult so we cheated a little bit this time and so we use an, an abridged version from this author named Eamon butler from the adam smith institute so thank you Eamon, and we want to give you the shout out here we're going to use a lot more of your language just because it's uh it's clearer and a little bit easier to understand yeah, and we can put a link to that on the uh, on the show page or on the uh, on the Facebook too, because it's uh, if you it's a lot uh, easier to get to the to the real nuts and bolts of what what Smith is talking about in uh, fairly more condensed versions. I mean, this this book was a, a big seller in its day, but I don't think anyone had an editor back then. They just you know, <laughs> just pumped out nine hundred fifty page books. All right, so one of his one of his key innovations is this idea of specialization, something that. Seems pretty obvious to us now, but uh, he's, he's, he teaches us that the, the key to economic efficiency is specialization, which what we mean by that is division of labor. And he uses the example of uh, creating a, a pin in a day. So most of us would be hard-pressed to make a pin in a single day, even if the metal were already mined and smelted for us and handed to us, and we certainly couldn't make 20, and yet 10 people in a pin factory can make 48,000 pins in a single day. So... If you think about today, there isn't anything that we do on our own really anymore. And even in American history, you would probably try, you know, you'd shoot a deer, use that leather to create your own shoes and your own clothes and your own string out of, out of reeds or something. And, you know, you got to wash your own clothes with a washboard that you built and the house that you built and milk the cows yourself and turn the butter yourself and create the cheese by yourself all these things that you had to sort of do on your own even that you know they they still had help in some some exchange and that sort of thing but today we don't do any of that right i mean we 
Mm-hmm. My, you know, my job has nothing at all to do with food, but yet we're able to eat just fine. And your job has nothing at all to do with with construction, and yet uh, you know you're able to live in a house that uh, that was built and you just purchased with money. And it's kind of like a no duh factor. Mm-hmm. But what he's saying is like that's the only way that we're going to really get ahead. And uh, and so that was an innovative thought. And then of course later in American history, you had Henry Ford who took that to the next level and created the who created the assembly line and had uh, workers at each station that, to build a, a certain piece. And of course that continues to today. Yeah, and it's the way Smith describes it too. He's he's not just he's not proposing this as as a scheme. He's pretty much describing a natural turn of events. And he, and he says that the the reason we specialize, we people figured this out a long time ago. You know, I mean, the farmer started growing more food than he could eat because he realized he could sell it and buy something from somebody else who's making more of that thing that he could eat. And it didn't take, you know, a, a utopian scheme of government to make this happen. It was just people figured it out and people were good at different things and got better at different things by doing them more often. And it just, it, it spurred itself. And this is sort of like, well, he's, he's not dictating capitalism. He's describing it. And that's sort of right, like, right. When people talk about capitalism as a system, like it's a system, but it's not a system that anybody made, uh, you know, it developed independently every place that people made things, you know, all around the world, people traded with each other and figured this, thing out smith in describing it was was breaking new ground because nobody really had put into words the 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 mechanisms of the market until he did but it's it is sort of, sort of an outgrowth of just human productivity and, and human civilization so there's you know everybody who wants to smash capitalism it's like you it's been tried people just do it it's not you can get rid of communism because it's an imposed system or you can get rid of fascism because it's an imposed system Capitalism is just what what Smith's describing here is people people getting good at something, making excess goods, trading them, and it just takes off from there and does its own thing. Yeah, you've made this point on many podcasts, which is that capitalism is it's not a theory; it's it's a description of what people do. It's, it's how they behave, and unlike some of these other economic theories like communism or whatever, where you have to describe it, you're kind of like, okay, wait, so it's this. You know, like people mm-hmm. completely understand immediately on a, a base level because this is just how they how they behave. Here's his, here's his probably his most famous quote. It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their own self-love, and never talk of them of our own necessities, but of their advantages. And this is kind of what has come to be understood as his, his invisible hand theory. It's not that the butcher or the ba- baker or brewer, it's not that the butcher is hard at work because she or he believes that they're, try- they're altruistic and trying to do something good for humanity. They're there to sort of serve their own self-interest to be able to provide for their own families, provide for their own, their own selves and their households. And it's almost as if an invisible hand moves people so that somebody becomes a teacher and somebody becomes a police officer and somebody becomes a farmer and somebody becomes a, a butcher or a brewer or a baker. And it doesn't happen as a result of bureaucrats in a Politburo sitting back saying like, okay, we need one of these. We need two of those. We need eight of that of those. And this guy wants to do that, but we need, we actually need him over here. No, it's the, it's kind of the invisible hand, something that's kind of compels you and moves you because an opportunity presents itself. And that's what you, pursue 
in your own self-interest, not out of altruistic reasons, not in order to benefit humanity <laughs> or having some some uh, overarching goal. And so that's how the market works. And you don't have to teach people that because they automatically behave that way. Yeah, and the point about that you're making about nobody's commanding it, and that's that when you see it, when they when you try and make a system that replaces it, you see just how many cal- calculations have to go into everything, and they're calculations that the market makes for you. You know, just it's the sort of a crowdsourcing of every of price because all all prices are the intersection of supply and demand, which Smith talks about here too, and. The Soviets tried this where they would say, well, we need to, we have to make this many things. Okay, what goes into it? This, this, and this. What goes into that? This, this, and they had to get all the way down to the, to the raw material when you don't need to do that if you just produce things that people want, you know, and you just, if you demand the finished product and say, all right, what do I have to buy to get it? Things will, people will jump in and, and supply those things. Say, oh, I, I know how to make that. I can, I'll, I'll supply you with those and, you can get this one over here and, and it just, it just, it comes together in a way that is, well, it's efficient. I mean, we've talked about some of the, you know, the problems of pure free marketism, but one of those problems is not efficiency because the market is the most efficient way to distribute goods. Yep. There's no, you know, it's the most efficient way to distribute labor too. Although concerns about how people live and how people are treated sometimes contradict what markets dictate for, for wages and whatnot. But but in terms of efficiency, in terms of getting things where they need to go, you know, getting buyers and sellers connected, nothing does it better than nothing, which is really what the market is. The market is nothing imposed. It's just people find each other because it's in their interest to do so. And that's that also is kind of, we think of that now, that's libertarians and, you know, libertarian-leaning Republicans and even some Democrats will talk about that as, well, duh, right? And there's, like you said earlier, there's a lot of duh factor in here, but it wasn't duh in 1776. It was, it was wow, you know, because, yeah. and a lot of people didn't want to believe that, you know, when you, we read, like when we read Rousseau, he had, he, he had different ideas about what motivates people. What, you know, this is what the Scottish Enlightenment, how it differed from the Continental Enlightenment is that they, they uh, figured out this sort of thing. And this is where in France, they were trying to figure out you know, what, what spurs the altruism here. Smith's saying there's no altruism. People are just doing the things they want to do and it all works together somehow. And it's, Mm -hmm. that sounds, you know, if you're coming from a society that encourages virtue, that sounds amoral at best, if not immoral, but it's, it's, it's what works. It's, it's counterintuitive a little bit that uh, a fundamental advantage of this sort of system is that it actually makes everyone better off, including the poorest members you know, when, when you specialize and when you trade in a, in a market economy, it, it's more efficient and makes items cheaper to sell and to buy. And in that way, even the poorest members of society gain access to a wide variety of products, he says, and services that would be completely unaffordable in the absence of specialization. And this is readily apparent to us. TVs and furniture and food and video games. I mean, my favorite example is that when the original Nintendo came out, the video games were... F- I remember one game that I wanted so badly for my birthday, and it was $45. This was back in 1989, maybe? $45 back then was a, was a mint for my mm-hmm. family, and oh, yeah. basically my entire present. These days, you can get games for cheaper than $45, and $45 is worth much less than it used to be worth. Mm-hmm. I mean... 
now brand new games are 60 bucks, but you can get a lot of games for, I mean, depending on the system, you can get them for 15 or $30. I mean, and it's in today's dollars, not in the 1989 dollars. It's pretty remarkable. And this is all brought to us by the power of the market and by the power of free trade is that things become cheaper as you become more, more proficient at manufacturing them, more proficient at, at uh, distributing them. And the efficiency is what brings down prices and, and makes it possible for even kind of the bottom quartile of American population to have a smartphone and to have a TV and basic needs, you know, air conditioning and so forth. And I'm not, we're not here to say that that is enough or that it's, you know, that these, that there isn't problems with the bottom quartile being a bottom quartile or so, so forth. Well, all we're saying here is that it's through this system that people are able to actually have a really solid standard of living at a much lower, lower cost. Yeah, even free market skeptics must admit from the data that there is, that has happened. You know, poverty has declined and even what's considered poor is not as bad as what it used to be to be poor. So things have gotten so much better just by this system that Smith is describing. And a lot of times he's just describing it. There are times when he when he pushes it as a good, but you also have to remember what he was comparing it to was the mercantile system, which involved a lot of government monopolies, a lot of laws restricting trade. It wasn't like comparing it to some socialist system because that really didn't exist yet. He was comparing it to a system where rich guys got favors from the government that would give them a monopoly on trade in a certain region or, you know, the right to supply, you know, the whole colony with a certain good. The sort of thing that caused the uh, the Tea Party in the first place, you know, the, uh, the British East India Company had the tea monopoly and it was overpriced. And uh, the colonists just had to pay it if they wanted to, because that was it. That's the sort of system Smith's going up against here. And he's saying, yeah, this, all these laws that we think are making things orderly or, you know, more necessary to make trade happen, they're not necessary and they impoverish us. You know, they make a few people rich who have friends at court who are able to get them these privileges. But, I mean, it was sort of a sort of crony capitalism. You know, it, yeah. we didn't have that term yet either. But it's, that's sort of what was going on. And even more so with sort of government monopolies that, you know, our uh, forefathers didn't like them uh, any better than, than we would. It makes you wonder if, if it wasn't for this sort of fundamental understand, misunderstanding that the British had about how, how the market works and how trade works. Maybe there never would have been an American Revolution. And what I mean by that is... The, the mercantilist kind of ideology is this idea that the British wouldn't allow the colonists to manufacture or weren't allowed to manufacture their own tea or many other goods. Instead, they wanted the British to do that and they wanted the American colonists to buy it because, again, under under the mercantilist uh, view of the world, it's it's the money or the treasure that has value and not the good. So they wanted the treasure. They wanted the money. So the American colonists had to buy their stuff, and tea was just one of them, but any number of goods where they didn't allow the colonists to make their um, manufacture their own, whatever it is, because they wanted the money to go back to the, to, the, to the British Empire and so forth. And what we're getting from Adam Smith is basically like, that's not the way to build wealth on either side. Actually, the British could be far better off had the Americans been allowed to specialize in what it did well. You know, and that the British were able to buy that at a cheap price rather than manufacture everything and then force their colonies in in America, in India, you know, all around the world to sort of purchase purchase their goods. They actually could have been much richer 
had they allowed these colonies to also trade and and to uh, specialize and focus and sell that back to the British and kind of get the the money back moving back and forth because again Adam Smith saying it's not the money that has value it's the good it's the consumption that actually has value right and what what all of these things do are sort of like sort of like the cartels that he also invades against and things that we kind of still have now. I mean, there's a lot of industries where you have to be a member of a certain guild to enter, like the law business, for instance. You know, you have to pay your dues and be a member of a certain guild and pass a certain test. And if you're not, well, you can't practice. And then governments, in in Smith's view, say that this is to protect the people from poor work. And, you know, if if we're talking about doctors, that's, yeah, there's there's reason there. You know, I, I wouldn't want completely unregulated medical industry you know that's maybe on a few things I'm, I'm not a pure libertarian but on a lot of things i mean we see a lot of uh a lot of uh barbers and, and hair braiding places are in the in the if you follow regulatory reform that's one of the ones that comes up a lot cosmetology the state dictates you have to have so many hundred hours of training to enter this business where you know it wasn't that long ago that you could just be a barber by you know apprenticing with a barber you know learning to cut hair yeah. Now you got to do hundreds of hours and get a certification and it's like, for what, what is the point of this? It makes you, makes, it makes a barrier to entry for, for poor people. Cause they can't afford to take the classes. It makes fewer people working in the industry, which means prices will go up, cost more to get the haircut. Smith talks about this and, and says it, it's, it depresses, it depresses the product too. It's not just that it makes it more expensive, but when there's no competition, again, no market, or a smaller market, you're not getting the same, you know, not getting the same high level work because not as many people are competing for the job. So that that's sort of, and, and this is a, obviously a fight we're still having today. There's a lot, there's probably more regulation on labor, like entry into a labor market, not just work conditions, but like that the kind of labor regulation that is a cartel. Uh, there's more of that today than there ever was in Smith's time. And it's, uh, yeah, it, it, you see it everywhere. It's, they're starting to get some pushback against that. I think the people at, uh, was it the R Street Project do that? R Street yeah. Initiative, something like that. That was for years just sort of building up piece by piece. And it was all in the name of we're going to protect the people. But really what you're doing is protecting uh, an industry and impoverishing everyone by putting these weird limits on markets. Yeah, that's right. And so back then it was guilds in their, in their trades and their crafts where today – like you said, cosmetology, but it's also in law. I mean, do you actually really need to go to three years of law school to draft a contract? I mean, no. I don't think so. No. <laughs> I think a smart high school kid could probably, yeah. you know, probably do something at a basic level. You know, obviously with more proficiency and age and experience, you'd be better at it. But do we really need those? Do we really need a realtor in order to buy a house? Is it really that unsafe? These are, it's, it's all around us. And, and I, I suspect that in all, all of you listeners in your state legislatures, they're constantly fighting over these things probably every every uh, legislative session because there are folks who are like, why do we need all these rules? Why do we need all these barriers to entry? And it's just fascinating that you know Adam Smith picked up on that. Of course, we're still fighting over it. But he spends a lot of time talking about uh, the market price and supply and demand, stuff that was, I think somewhat understood but he his real innovations is just to lay it plain like you said to really describe it he says uh, the price at which products are actually sold is the market price this depends on supply and demand the quantity of the product that sellers bring to market and the size of the demand 
from potential buyers. If a market is overstocked and prices are below the cost of production, employers will withdraw their stock or workers will withdraw their labor. He says the market is therefore self-regulating. Prices are always gravitating towards the cost of production under con- uh, competition. Now there is there is collusion, there is uh, cartels as you just described, but by and large, prices are set not by companies or stores, but by the market price. Like what are people actually willing to to pay for it? What what is the market willing to bear? And we've had this conversation before because you could you can contrast this with say the labor theory of, of value or of, or of price, which is to say, hey, I took six, it took me six hours to build this Play-Doh sculpture. So it's worth six hours to me. So that's 40 bucks. And a guy's kind of like, well, it looks like it's worth about 15 cents or a quarter to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's all I'm going to pay for it. So that's a, that, that's a contrast of sort of, doesn't really matter how long it took you to make it in a market. In a free market, the market price is set by what are willing people willing to pay, and then it comes to uh, to an equilibrium where the store is able to sell it at that price for the manufacturer, the producer, and the people, the purchasers are willing to pay a certain price. And if it's too high, then it's not purchased, and they're going to have to lower the price. Or sometimes it's uh, the demand is so high that you could actually raise the price. And in housing across the country is is in this mm. position right now. We can, actually housing is a perfect example that everyone could understand that when uh, sometimes it's a buyer's market, sometimes it's a seller's market. If there's more buyers, then you can usually get a better price, and you don't have to offer any any uh, cuts on the closing costs or something like that. Versus if there's not a lot of buyers and there's a lot of uh, inventory, like for example after the financial crisis, well then you're going to have to lower prices and you might take a bath and end up having to you know, sell it for less than, than you think it's worth or the loan that you have it on. So, but the amazing thing is that there is no Politburo, that there is no like bureaucracy that's sitting back and, and marking down these prices and pulling out a calculator. It's set by the market, by uh, the sort of invisible hand. So he, he identified that and described it well. Yep. And he, and he was, unexpe- you know, unsurprisingly against, uh, tariffs too which has sort of come into the news again in the past few years something that we've debated in this country since it was founded and you know for the same reason that this is meant to protect a domestic industry that's probably less efficient and you know why not just if something is cheaper elsewhere buy it elsewhere he does allow a few exceptions to that he talks about defense needs so he would he wouldn't expect us he wouldn't expect britain to outsource the construction of all of its ships to France. That seems like a bad idea. And I think everyone can understand that. He also he also says something that I think is more applicable today is that when there's when something is taxed domestically, it might make sense to put a tariff on the foreign version of that thing. And I think we come into that problem here too, is when we run it, we, when we have corporate taxes being what they are, and they're, they're lower now than they used to be, but we're importing from another country that doesn't have those corporate taxes or a country where the rule of law does not prevail and who knows what taxes are getting paid anyway, like, like in the communist China, then we are sort of without having a tariff, we're sort of subsidizing or putting a negative tariff on ourselves. You know, we're, mm-hmm. if we tax domestic production, but allow untaxed foreign production, even Adam Smith says there might be room for some sort of tariff in that situation, because at that point you're just, you're actually distorting the market against yourself and 
you know, a parallel distortion might even the playing field a bit. Yeah, I think corporate tax corporate tax rates are a perfect example of that. Another great example for our contemporary conversation is environmental regulations and mm-hmm. dealing with climate change where we can, we can go ahead and impose strict regulations on ourselves or maybe a carbon tax or something like that versus China is going to continue to produce and they don't care about those. <laughs> they're they're going to go ahead and produce and pollute at the same time. And, uh, you know, obviously an issue that, that should be addressed. Yeah, they signed the Paris Accords too, but they burned more coal last year than they did the year before. And yeah. it's and yeah, don't and that's just what they're admitting to. I mean, right. so who knows who knows what the real statistics are? And, so. and they're the highest emitter, and the U.S. is second, but they're more than double our emissions. <laughs> so the for for comparison, yeah, that's a great example. I mean, it's it's when we impose costs on ourselves, it's it's the same sort of market distortion. That Smith's talking about is if, if we impose costs on foreigners, but this time we're just doubly hurting ourselves because we hurt our consumer and we hurt our producer. So he gives us a lot about trade that I really appreciated, and and even in like you say the contemporary debate is still is still raging. But he's gonna he argues that as long as a country is producing more than it consumes, it is saving and adding to its capital. Such a country could still import more than it exports an adverse trade balance, and nevertheless continue to produce surpluses and grow richer. So this is something that uh, free traders, and I put myself in that camp, would would argue is that the trade deficit actually doesn't matter very much. Because if you think about it in macro terms, if let's say we have a trade deficit with, uh, let's just name a country, Zimbabwe. They send more to us good goods and services than we send to them. But if you think about it in the macro, what's happening is they're sending us goods and services. So we'll call that stuff. They're sending us stuff and we're sending them our paper. In other words, our cash, which ultimately, as Adam Smith would argue, is just a mode for exchange and doesn't have any inherent value of its own. It only has value in the ability to like turn around and buy something else. So if we have a massive trade deficit, with uh, with Zimbabwe, well, they're taking our paper and we're taking their stuff. So ultimately, you know, we're the ones who are going. We're we're just we're better off than we would be otherwise. Now I know where you're going to go, Kyle. In that uh, with our trade deficit with China, the same thing is actually happening. We're sending them paper, mm-hmm. and they're sending us stuff. That's uh, true. It it does create other problems in that stuff is is created is manufactured and produced by people. And our citizens, and so we don't want to leave them. We we don't want to forget that that element, and that's very important. And so those are considerations. But at at the at a macro level, this is something I think you know President Trump just fundamentally just doesn't understand that the trade deficit itself doesn't mean that they're stealing from us. That's the mer, mer, uh, the mercantilist view of the world that it's the treasure, it's the money that has the most value, and whoever has the most of it is the richest. When in fact, like we're sending them paper. And they're sending us stuff and we have all their stuff and they get to keep our paper until they what they're going to have to buy something from us. Otherwise they're just sitting on it and it has no value. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not as much of a free trader as you are, but that, that point is true. And it always bothered me that, that president Trump would bring up the deficit, the trade deficit. He didn't bring up the other deficit, <laughs> not the, <laughs> not the budget deficit, right. the trade deficit though, because that's not the wrong measure. Um, it's true. You could have, even when we were manufacturing way more 
as a percentage of the world economy, there was there were countries we would have trade deficits with. And it doesn't, yeah, for the reason you said, especially when they're taking, you know, when we're the one printing the paper, it gives us a different advantage. When two other countries, two smaller countries are trading between themselves and they're trading with our paper or with euros, it's a different scenario too because that money doesn't necessarily come back to the one that sent it abroad but when we're the one making it 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 does and that is that is as a matter of economics completely true we are not impoverished by having a trade deficit what smith says here and i think needed to be said in his in his day was consumption is the sole end and purpose of production and the interest of the producer ought to be attended to only so far as it may be necessary for promoting that of the consumer. I think that today has gone too far. And, you know, some of the stuff we read in Carney's book, for instance, about the, the virtues that, that regular work gives to a person, the, the practice at life that it builds, you know, the regularity and preparing you to be a, a solid citizen by working every day. I think that does get dissipated when we send too many jobs away, especially too many entry-level jobs, jobs that don't require graduate degrees and such. But as an economic matter, the, yeah, we've got better stuff than we ever got, and we have it cheaper. And that that's not everything, but it can't be denied that that has value. And it's not just about TVs and video games. I mean, uh, you know, the medical equipment that's in, in hospitals, the, the materials that build our homes, you know, our appliances, clothing, things that are necessary for life or to, for prolonging life we get that cheaper because of trade whether we buy that thing abroad or we buy it domestically with money that we made selling you know buying and selling things abroad so it's i i, I am not a, an autarkist you know or somebody who wants to cut off all trade but i i you know i, I see its problems but i'm with you on this it's uh trade deficits aren't what they're cracked up to be it's a point well taken, and we have talked about it in the in the Carney book and at other times, and I'm sure we will on future podcasts, that, that there are some downsides to not having a, a manufacturing base of people. Now, uh, we've, we've seen before in other books that our, our manufacturing production is actually at, at the same level or, or higher than it's been in mm-hmm. uh, historical terms, but uh, employment is is more of a problem, and we can talk about that another time, and I, and I grant all that, uh, that it's an issue that needs to be addressed. But I guess for my purposes, I, I do want to make the point that the trade deficit per se, in and of itself, uh, President Trump would characterize it as the Chinese completely ripping us off. When in fact, we're the ones who are getting the stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're the ones who are getting like dollar bills that only have value if they're going to turn around and buy stuff from us. So um, anyway, that's the only point I wanted to make. But he, uh, he also says at a time when it really wasn't uh, in fashion, he says the trade restrictions are a tax on the whole country. And this is a debate we, we've we had uh, about a number of the tariffs that President Trump put in place, too, is that he says that it's the other countries that pay the tariffs, when in fact, it's actually us. <laughs> yeah, We're the ones who pay because the, the cost of the good that's coming from China or, you know, when he, he did the 301 tariffs, or at least we're aiming at them on uh, French wine or cheese or that sort of thing. It just makes those goods more expensive for us. So when we purchase them, we pay more money for them. We can't have as many of it as we used as we could before because it used to be cheaper. So. Yeah, and the guy who's buying French wine is still buying French wine. He's just having yeah. to spend more for it. you know. If if you really want that real champagne, you're you're still gonna buy it. You know, unless the tariff is a prohibitive tariff, 
and then nobody's getting money. You know, the country's not getting the tariff because it's so high that nobody's paying it. Yeah. You know, it's it's like when there's a tax that's so high that people just don't do the thing that's taxed anymore because it's it's pointless. I think the president looked at money as a. I think it would have helped him to look at money as an IOU, which is really what it is. It's an yeah. IOU on the on the yeah. Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. He looked at it more like the mercantilist looked at gold. Like it's the thing you have to have it. You get a big vault of it and swim in it like Scrooge McDuck, and then you win. But that's yeah. That, that Smith is really pointing out the flaw in that. Is that that doesn't do any good. The good of money is a thing it buys. You know, it's, who cares if you have a vault of gold? It's good to save. You know, it's good to have it, but it itself it can't be eaten, can't be worn, can't be lived in. You know, it's it's only a good as a medium of exchange and. That exchange is the the trade that benefits us both. So, I mean, I had a lot of sympathy for what President Trump was saying about China. They were ripping us off not because of the trade deficit, but because they, you know, they have things made by slaves and they sell them to us. And that's problematic in many different ways. (laughs) But it's not because it's a deficit. It's because it's, it's forced labor and a bunch of other things and it's even if it wasn't forced labor, it's undercutting us by not following laws and doing all these other but yeah, he was fixated on the deficit, and that, I think, skews the whole conversation in a way that Smith was able to refute in 1776. Yeah, I think that there's, there's on so many fronts, there are, there are real complaints that we should have against China, and we need to be very skeptical, and and uh, we've talked about those on other podcasts, and we can, we can do it on the future, too, so I d- definitely don't want to leave you, listener, with the impression that I don't think there's a major problem. There definitely is. All right, so one last thought that he had that I thought was interesting is he was talking about the American colonists. He's, he, he basically is saying that uh, Britain insists on taxing its American colonists but refuses them parliamentary representation. This has precipitated discontent and turned the Americans from peaceful tradesmen into militant politicians. <laughs> <laughs> the only solution is for Britain to grant representation to the colonies in proportion to what they contribute to the public finances. And again, this was published in 1776. I mean, how, uh, for, for two, I mean, it's just the history is aligning. <laughs> Pretty cool. Yeah. Way. It must've been a big hit over here. I mean, it's, and it's, he's right. I, I think a lot of what people were mad about would have gone away with that and with, and into some of the monopolies and, and also, you know, like letting us trade with other countries. We had to buy everything from Britain. That's going to make you mad when you know you could get it cheaper from the French West Indies, but you have to buy it from a British supplier. You know, that's why there was so much smuggling in the early Republic. And he talks about that here too, is if you make so many tariffs that people just smuggle, nothing is getting done. You're not getting what you want. They're not, they're still doing what they want. It doesn't make sense. And that's America was full of smugglers back then because the British made all these laws, but they didn't have, you know, police, (laughs) <laughs> they had the army sometimes if they happened to be there and the navy might catch you maybe but we just were doing what we wanted already over here and it, we could see this replay itself throughout history i mean it happened with the colonists it happened in russia i mean uh, the soviet union i mean there will be a black market that that rises up because this is how people operate it just is if they want to have their get their hands on something there'll be a price for it and someone will if there's a price and it's high enough then someone will deliver that good you know for that price like you said uh capitalism is just describes how people behave and it's it's not a a system that people have to sit back and you don't have to explain it to them all right what are your closing thoughts well i think just to build on that is it people who want to um 
believe humanity is capable of great things, better things, higher pursuits, often hate capitalism because it does, as Smith describes, it's about self-interest. I, I think he would say that that self-interest leads to common good more often than it doesn't. What people are mad about really is mankind itself, you know, humanity that we have, that we value self-preservation over these altruistic goals that, you know, college freshmen would love to have and discuss in their philosophy courses, but that's not how it works. And, and that's disappointing to people, but I think looking at the results of, of what capitalism has brought to the world, look at how many people have been lifted out of poverty just since the end of the Cold War. Yeah. And before that too. I mean, look what this country, this this country was built on these ideas and became rich, powerful, safe, stable country with liberal democracy, you know, civil rights, all of it, none of it would have been possible. I mean, the whole reason people came here was capitalism, to start the colonies to make money. And it, you know, it, there's, there's good in that. It's not a pure good. It's not the only good, you know, and we could, we could go round and round about that. But what Smith recognized is that this self-interest is, does lead to an efficient system that does a lot of good for a lot of people. Well said, and we read this as a conservative minds book because these ideas still have to be defended, even though, as we've said, there is a major no-duh factor about it. It's they still We still have to debate it. We still have to fight for it. We still have to demonstrate, like, actually, we do need lower corporate taxes. Actually, we do need trade in order, in order to operate. You know, this country, you know, your smartphone, pieces of it come from all over the world. And so these ideas that are hundreds of years old, we, we still have to defend them. We still have to be out front. And, and you know, it's certainly more conservatives who are who are defending it. And I just as a personal note, I, I remember reading uh, Adam Smith and taking Econ 101 when I was in college. And it just, it, I felt like it just opened up the world. Like it, it just explained the world so well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you could see it and you kind of know it. But uh, I think Adam Smith, in a way, just described it that, no, this is what's happening and, and we need to take note of it. And this is how people behave and we need to take note of it. And, and it's just one more example of when it comes to conservatism, conservatism believes in a human nature. And Adam Smith was describing that the self-interest that people have. It's, it's not the altruism that, that motivates people. It's almost like an invisible hand moves people to different pe- places on the chessboard because it's their self-interest that's driving them. And I think that's a great insight. All right, that's Adam Smith. Catch us next time.